You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. It's not the cool thing that you think in an American high school. You know, in an American high school, you're in a band, you're the cool guy. We grew up in Versailles. If you're in a band, you're a loser. <laughs> it's that simple. You're even nerds. Nerds are cooler than musicians in France. France really respects musicians when they make it. You know, when you play your first big show. But before that, if they see you with a guitar on the airplane, they think like, this guy's taking so much space in the cabin luggage and he's looking at him. If you, if you travel with your guitar in the US, they're like, everybody's checking you out and like, hey, do, hey, do you play? Is that a Gibson? They all want to bond with you. you know? uh, it's a total different experience. My name is Thomas Mars. I'm in the band Phoenix, and the album was out November 4th. The label is called Glassnode Records, and it's also licensed from our own record label, which is called Loyauté. seventh album from French pop band Phoenix. Formed by four childhood friends, Thomas Mars met Dec Darcy at school when they were 10. Christian Mazalai would join them four years later, followed by his older brother, Laurent Bronkowitz. Together, they would win a Grammy on their fourth album, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. If you, like me, found the title slightly confounding, it's the desired response. Perhaps it's because they're French, there is a slight awkwardness, or a je ne sais quoi, inherent in the way they make music. Certainly, it's in the albums where the foursome have embraced the cultural nuances and quirks of a French band singing in English that their music has been the most engaging. Alpha Zulu, like Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, features a perplexing title. It conjured up images of warriors for me, but in truth, it's linked to language and Thomas' sphere of flying. But before we get into that, he takes us back to his childhood in Versailles, the seat of the Sun King, Louis XIV, a reign famed as much for its grandeur and success in war as it was for its decadence and access in the bedchambers. Mm-hmm. 
So you grew up in Versailles, which is a city steeped in history and like yeah. one of the most famous peace treaties was signed there at the end of the First World War. And it's the royal residence of Louis XIV. And you've always said that it's a museum city, right? And as a child growing up there, it really gave you something to rebel against. I mean, what was that feeling like? Yeah, it was strange because even though the only experience we had with Versailles, you know, we, we never lived anywhere else, we still knew it was different that it was a strange city. My parents and the brothers' parents in the band were somehow from, they were a bit outsiders. My mom is German. Mm. The brothers' parents were Italian and German. Dex's mother was from the South. So when they came to Versailles, I think they were surprised how austere it was. Mm. And very judgy. It's a very strict Catholic city. Uh, women should be having kids. Men should be working and kids should be wearing uniforms and uh, you had to have as many kids as you can. You should pretend like everything is normal. You know, you should pretend like everything is great. And you live in the city and the contrast with the city is that what happened a few hundred years back, specifically more around the castle, Mm. specifically Louis XIV, was a life that was so over the top and the grandeur and the disproportion of, you know, it was the most decadent. uh, Debauchery. Yes. So you have this contrast of something that's presented to you as something very conservative, but you know when you visit the castle and you know when you visit the gardens that it was a a place of debauchery and, and order and power and filth. And yet the city itself was just pretending that the city was living in a museum and was kneeling to all the power and just bowing to this grand ideas that was in total contradiction with their values. So mm. it was very striking. I loved growing there for two reasons. I would say was because it gave us a sense of being rebellious and maybe unconformist, mm. which is a luxury, you know, when you don't feel like you're conformist. It's the first step to being an artist. I feel like that's giving you some freedom there. And the other reason is that the gardens of Versailles were really great to hang out in. And we have access to them all the time. And we'd go at night, you know, we'd jump a fence, we'd go there at night. Even our PE classes were in the gardens of Versailles. Wow. So the, the beauty that surrounded you, the symmetry, that does something to you, I think, because it was really... Uh, inspiring. It was great for your brain, I think. You mentioned your mum's German, and I understand she had like some trauma from the Second World War. You've talked about this German philosophy that post-war was like, it's forbidden to say forbid. You could do anything you want. Yeah. So what did it mean for you to grow up in that kind of household? I think both my parents and the uh, brother's parents were, everything was quiet and in order in Versailles. So my parents were not really in in that mold. So I just remember people judging us all the time. I remember being looked at and judged a lot, which I guess made me very shy, you know, and I think the brothers in the band can relate to this. And you find the other ways to express because you're not happy with the community you, you live in. So... My parents were very open to us hanging out together, finding peers, and they would let us play in the basement. I'm amazed that they would let us make noise 
you know, every weekend to like 2 a.m. And uh, they could hear the music and the music was bad when you start. You know, it's I mean, it's a joyous mess, but it's still bad. Mm. Um, and they tolerated everyone and the music and they never really asked questions. They were not judgy about anything. My basement became like a safe heaven for the band, you know. And we were lucky that we were not in Paris because Paris, even though it had more life to it and more culture, and you wouldn't find a space like this in Paris. It'd be too expensive. So having this space in the suburbs allowed us to practice and really make music early on. And being shy did what it did, which is like hang out together and not hang out with anyone else. They were not really any activities to participate in. Mm. There wasn't really any parties or anything to do there. So music had this magnet quality that the first time we, we played together, we're like, this is not a hobby. You know, this is something serious. For everybody, it was really serious. But for me, I couldn't even handle the fact that I wouldn't do music. So I would destroy any other option in my life. You know, I, I went to college for four days. And as soon as I went to Sorbonne, actually, after four days, I was like, these are not my people. This is not what I want to do. I'm out of here. Mm. I'm not studying math and economy. This is not my field. <laughs> I have no talent for it. I'm not, I'm not gifted in any way. There also there's a sense that you, even if you maybe had those gifts, you weren't interested in any way trying to build any kind of career out of that. Yeah, no, I really didn't have a gift for it, uh, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> there's probably other things that I could have been interested in that I could have pursued, but not the field that I picked. France has these very strange laws that we wanted to escape to Paris. So to go to Paris, you have to find a subject in college ah, that you don't have. In your town. Yeah, yeah in your town. So I picked something that they didn't exist in my town. It just didn't matter what it was. As long as it would take me away to Paris, that was my way out. Um, so what is a, a memory from your childhood that really brings you joy? I think when Deck and I we started the band, the first day Chris came, I knew that Chris was like a great guy right away. He came to the studio and he played this one Pixies song on the guitar. Yeah. He played the Where Is My Mind riff. Oh. <laughs> as soon as he played it, my favorite memory is Dick and I, we rushed in the hall, the two of us, and we both agreed, we're like, he's in the band, right? We are telling him he's in the band right now. Finding him and agreeing and finding your group, feeling like complete, I would say is my best memory. And what is a memory from your childhood that makes you sad? I love my grandpa. Like I would see him every day. He's the one who would pick me up from school. You know, his car would pull up. He had a BMW 300 something. It was beige. It was a great car. But he would smoke. It smelled like non-filter gitan or goloise. He'd smoke so much that the car inside was like orange. <laughs> then one day he was gone. And his car didn't show up. So all of a sudden I had to walk. That walk to go home every day was like, where is he? So I think that loss um, was a big transition, maybe I'd say. Uh, that's the one. Mm. Yeah, that's the one thing. Um, How old were you? That was first year of French college. So I was 11. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a big shift because he would take me to all these activities and then he 
all these activities stopped because I didn't want to do them anymore, you know? So it was like anything that you, mm. the joy you have to go play tennis or whatever it was, uh, all of a sudden I was like, I'm not going to play tennis because he's not taking me down. So I stopped. Wow. In a way, it was like a good thing because I moved to music really quickly. I had to find people to hang out with. He was a hairdresser, my grandfather. So yeah. he cut my hair. And no one since has ever cut my hair. I cut it myself. That's why it's so bad. Because I refused. I was like, he's gone. No, Nobody's touching my hair. I'm doing it myself. It looks really good. <laughs> I never would have guessed you've been cutting your hair. It's not. It's not. The back is terrible. It's like those holes and stuff. Is there a song or a moment when you kind of realize you know, like, wow, music is transcendent. You know, it, it can really take you somewhere. Yeah. First, hearing music being amplified at a show. I was like nine or ten, like a punk show. It wasn't good. The show was terrible. But the snare drum <laughs> and the kick drum being amplified, you know, through speakers, that had a huge impact. Wow. So the first time I heard this, I was like, this is something special. Yeah. And then in terms of songs, when Thriller came out, I was seven, eight. Yeah. So the best sounding record of all time. So sonically, it would play in the car and you'd be like, this is the best experience. Same with Little Red Corvette. Mm. It was a song that was very special to me because I was obsessed with the verse and I was frustrated with the chorus. So I thought like the chorus needs to be different. Yeah. So it was it was incredible. But at the same time, I wanted to, to make music to do something about it. I was like, the chorus is too distorted. Now I think it's perfect. But at the time, I was like, <laughs> I was obsessed with that song. Wow. Those were songs that I heard on the radio as well. But I just liked it for the melodies. Like the sonics didn't make an impact on me. Yeah. But you were already at that age kind of thinking that should be better or that should be worse, like already practicing your musician brain. But at the same time, the lyrics, I was totally mesmerized because I thought I didn't speak English. Mm. But I was hearing these words and I thought he was talking about my life. I didn't see anything sexual in it. Mm. I thought he was talking just about a car, not about a girl. So I took it to, I didn't took it even literally because I couldn't take it literally. Mm. I was amazed by how wide and how strange it was. Prince's world was so unique. You didn't know when you were an eight-year-old boy, you didn't know if he was a boy, if he was a girl what country he was from. You didn't know when he was on TV, naked in the bathtub. Yeah. Uh, you know, you were like, what is this? How is this legal in Versailles? You know, <laughs> to be on TV, you're like, how is the city of Versailles not not censoring this? That's how I felt. Like I'm watching something that's illegal and someone's going to come and, and turn the TV off any second. Speaking of seeing Prince in the bathtub, you and Deck were so close and you guys knew each other first. You were so close that your parents thought that you were lovers. Yeah. Um, but also, <laughs> uh, did you guys know that at the time that they thought that? Yeah. Uh, I thought my mom thought that my, because I had a little room next to my parents' house when I was 16, maybe. And she thought that my room was like a place for orgies and stuff. She's like, what's going on there? You guys are always there. She thought like it was the most decadent 
I remember thinking like, well, they're cool with like whatever's going on here, but it's not that decadent. <laughs> you know, it's not that crazy. We're just focused on music mostly. But yeah, I do remember afterwards, they all became friends. And so uh, I remember the mothers talking to each other and thinking like, yeah, we thought Dick and you were together. And we thought like we were teenagers, like trying to figure out who we were. And, but uh, no, it was more boring than this, the reality. In your first couple of years when you were starting out music, you know, when it was really like noisy and not as sonorous as it became, you guys used to fight a lot and throw things at each other. What were you fighting about? Everything. There was one year where we fought about every single thing. I guess because it was the beginning and we were trying to be on the same wavelength, we were so frustrated. We could play music on Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. because Dex's mom was the most strict and she would come pick him up at like 9 or 10. Yeah. So we couldn't stay till midnight. So we had only like two, three hours of rehearsals a week. Yeah. And that was making those two, three hours so tense because if someone had any advice, even if it was a valid input, you know, if it was yeah. someone trying to explain how to play better, we wanted to play so badly. They were like, shut up, just play, just play. And <laughs> I was playing drums back then. So I had the drumsticks. So when someone was trying to do something, it was like interrupting them, like, one, two, three, and starting, they would do the same. They would stop the song. We were kids being chaotic and so eager to play that sometimes we were threatening each other, throwing things. And when you're 14, 15, 16, you don't really feel anything. You're like a, you're like clay. Yeah. I would throw myself in the drums or something and you wouldn't be hurt. Yeah. For a solid year, we would record everything we did and everything was a scream. You know, we would shout everything. We wouldn't talk. It was just shouting. I was just thinking that French was bordel. Yeah. Our first band with Deck was called Boxon, which means mess, <laughs> which was a perfect name for a first band. <laughs> okay. So you didn't start out as a singer um, because you, you're just talking about being on the drums and, and also because you were quite shy. So when did you start singing and did you know you wanted to be a singer? Not at first. I was like kind of into the romantic idea of being a poet, nice. you know, at like 14, 15. I loved, uh, you know, dark character. I loved like Ian Curtis. I loved Pablo Neruda, the poet, because my mom mm. named me after him. My second name was Pablo. Oh. I had two German uncles who were writers, but one was sending me books of like beatnik poetry. Yeah. He was kind of feeding me good stuff. Yeah. And I love my relationship with him the same way that I love with my grandfather. So he would give me stuff to read. So I enjoyed that part. But singing behind the drums, everybody knew it was mm. temporary. That either someone else would have to sing or I would have to... Stop drumming. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think Dex started singing a little bit too. But... My English accent became better because at some point I dated a British girl. Nice. So then that, that speeds things up. Yeah, that speeds things up. <laughs> and then I really got into it. Like I, I started to enjoy seeing. And um, it's shoegazing era. So you could be a singer and be shy at the same time. Yes. You know, My Bloody Valentine, the melodies are so buried into the song. It's mm. the same with like 
the Stone Roses, you know, Ian Brown is not Aretha Franklin. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and yet the songs are amazing. That was enough to give us like a little ego boost. And my friends were really into it as well, pushing me. That helped. In 1999, Phoenix began releasing singles on their own label, Ghetto Blasters. They were initially seen as part of the French touch, a movement in electronic music that included French bands such as Air and Daft Punk. In truth, many of them were friends from Versailles. Bandmates from Brankovic's first band, Darling, had actually gone on to form Daft Punk. The following year, Phoenix released United, their debut. Being an indie band from France presented them with some unique challenges. Still, the album received good reviews and singles like If I Ever Feel Better and Too Young started to appear on the charts. Something that Nicolas Godin said from Air that as a French person, he never thought that making a band was cool because of your culture, but you guys made it cool. And I was like, what does he mean by it's not cool to be in a band because of your culture? Is that because of being French or is it because at the time your little circle of friends there were like doing electronic and dance music? They were into the rave scene. Uh, I think it's the first thing, but I you'd have to ask him, but I think it's the... It's not the cool thing that you think in an American high school. You know, in an American high school, you're in a band, you're the cool guy. We grew up in Versailles. If you're in a band, you're a loser. <laughs> <laughs> it's that simple. You're even nerds. Nerds are cooler than musicians in France. Uh, France really respects musicians when they make it. You know, when you play your first big show... But before that, if they see you with a guitar on the airplane, if you carry your guitar on the airplane, they think like, this guy's taking so much space in the cabin luggage and he's <laughs> looking at him. If you, if you travel with your guitar in the US, they're like, everybody's checking you out and like, is that a Gibson? Is that a, and they're all, they all want to bond with you. <laughs> uh, it's a total different experience. It must have changed a little bit in France, but. To me, I remember the thinking about this specific moment because I saw before he passed, I saw Bo Diddley on a plane and he had his famous guitar with the case and he looked like the coolest guy you can ever see. Wow. And I thought like, okay, that's where it's coming from because there were Bo Diddleys ah. and these didn't exist in France before. You know, people in America, they witnessed, a few of them saw saw these guys on the plane or yeah, on the yeah. train or wherever they would go. And these guys were cool. That didn't happen in France and they had no... Point of comparison. Yeah, I think so. They didn't have that history. Yeah, interesting. Um, So you guys were obviously very cocky from the very start and like, you know, and the yeah. its peak cockiness is when you think, well, why go to college for, right? Like I'm going to be famous. Yeah. But what was the first sort of big setback that you had at that stage and kind of like a reality check? We had a few quickly, but we were so motivated. My dad somehow knew this guy who was working at a radio. Mm -hmm. Then one day we were playing and he came downstairs 
And he heard us play and he's like, okay, guys, if you want this to be your job, you have to play every day for like five hours for the next 10 years. And then hopefully you'll be a studio musician. Mm -hmm. So he had his vision of music was just constructed about being a professional musician, was not create your own. Mm. Then you'd be able to play other people's music on other people's record if you're the best mm -hmm. of the best. Mm -hmm. This was the same idea in Versailles when you would study classical music, solfege, they call it, just uh, music theory. If you are the best of the best, you could play Rachmaninoff on piano. Creating your own music and everything, that was not even, that shouldn't even cross your mind. You're not as good. Yeah, I was so bound to his, the establishment. It was so conformist, the whole environment that yeah. we always thought like, well, this is not really going to hurt us because we'll be fine. But the setbacks throughout our whole first album, I would say, the setbacks were, so, there were so many. The yeah. main thing that was great is that some of them we really enjoyed. And when you enjoyed the lows as a group, you know, when you had a great time mm. playing in front of no one and during a show, you know, when a venue is empty, that's, that's yeah. really a great moment. You know, throughout your life, you're going to have ups and downs. And when you enjoy the downs as much as the, even sometimes it's kind of subtle, majestic, but we enjoy the lows even more sometimes than the highs. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so that's a little disturbing. Yeah. And when you released United, were you still like trying to convince folks that you're French, but you sing in English? Were you still like constantly trying to convince people that, hey, we can do this? When did it sort of stop? It never really stops. Wow. There are still French people that think I'm English. You always have to explain why you sing in English because there's always new generations and there's people that lose track. It's not annoying. It's healthy. Mm. There's always someone that's asking a question that everybody has the answer to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so true. So would it be fair to say that the use of your song Too Young in the film Lost in Translation was a big breakthrough moment for the band? And how did Sophia come across your band at that time? Was it through one of her cousins? Uh, no, it, I think it's her. She discovered it through, it was on a music playlist that she heard that was maybe a French, mm. but it was the song Honeymoon. First. Mm. And also she had two friends that she worked with. One is Mike Mills, who directed movies and did videos for for Air. Love him. He came to Versailles to mm -hmm. do things with Air and we hang out with him a little bit. He talked to her about it. And then she talked to Roman, her brother, about it. So after that, we worked with Roman quite a bit too on music videos. And the song, If I Ever Feel Better, I think did more than Too Young because... That was the big song in France and Italy yeah. opened a lot of doors for us. Now, I'm always amazed. We just played a show not too long ago in Mexico. And for the first time when we started Too Young, the crowd was roaring, yeah. which never happened before. <laughs> it's a song that people like. And it's just like, oh, cool. It's that song. I like it. Yeah. But it's the first time. And so we talked about it after the show. Like this is you see when we played too young the crowd was like the reaction so it, it keeps growing that song it's nice two other albums would follow alphabetical in 2004 and it's never been like that in 2006 but it would be their fourth album that would bring them mainstream success a list of mania think let's see it grow like a ride like a ride oh not easily offended from a mess to the master 
Listomania was one of the album's two biggest singles. It was a tribute to Hungarian composer Franz Litz. Tomar was reading Litz's biography at the time, and he learned that thanks to the 18th century composer's prowess at the piano, and as a result with the ladies, biographers would consider him the first rock star. You had come from this whole childhood and history of Versailles, and then you make this album, which is like kind of reveling in sort of like hitching your wagon to all things that you'd always tried to rebel against. And it works, you know. But when you were in the studio, was there a sense of why are we writing about this? And how crucial was someone like Philip Zadar to that process? Yeah, Philip was crucial because he. We were looking for a studio. We came to a studio that was under construction and he had saved us on United. He mixed this album, but for the other two, he didn't participate, but he saw what we had become from the outside and he had very strong opinions. He was, he came to us and was like, yeah, you should do something modern. He was like, be obsessed with something modern. Mm. And as he was coming to the studio, when we were making this album, he was starting to produce it without knowing it. So he, he was encouraging, he, he loved the songs he was hearing and he was always pushing us to be more modern. And that made sense because the lyrics were so not modern. There were all references from the past. Mm. I think it's also mm. an album, a lot about our childhood because the brother's father passed away while we were making uh. this album. And so it was the first time that we had something for them and as a band that was really intense in our life mm. that was affecting creativity but mm. weirdly in a good way because we were putting all our emotions in it so it was philippe plus the place plus all these elements we knew there was more things at stake also at the beginning of wolfgang we didn't have a record company we didn't have management we didn't have anyone and we needed to seduce people to work with there was a threat that now we're older, but back then we were already old, you know, like uh, it was our fourth record and our manager, he told us he had a few meetings. It was like, well, these guys don't want to sign you because they think you're too old. <laughs> it was like, I, what, why am I going to sign the fourth album of a band that's does okay? But it was a strange time for us. Wow. But we were so excited about the music. We were cocky and we knew we had something really good. So we were like, this is going to work somehow. And they were right. Listomania was certified gold. Wolfgang Namadeus Phoenix went on to win the Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album in 2010. Its biggest selling single, a tribute to the Art Nouveau movement in Paris at the turn of the 20th century, was called 1901. It was used in several ads, TV shows, and would be featured at the 2011 Super Bowl. Oh, no. 
Their next album would be called Bankrupt, and it hinted at the pitfalls that can come with this kind of success. At the end of the Wolfgang tour, our audience was a bit too large. We had people that love our music, yeah. but we also had a bunch of people that were coming to the show that was, you know, frat boys, mm. people that, that didn't know our songs from before, that, that just wanted to hear 1901. Mm. There was a party vibe that was getting to us, you know, a little bit that was not good. So I think yeah. we were, we started bankrupt with this idea that we had people's attention and we were going to be teasing them and testing them a little bit. The next album would be a challenge sonically and mm. every song would have seven parts going into modulations and tricky. We wanted it to be complex and rich and also playful on this idea that, you know, a song like Dracar Noir yeah. explains it's a repulsive perfume. You know, it's the theme of this album and the idea of bankruptcy, you know, getting rid of every of everything you've gathered and starting from scratch. Yeah. So we knew we were going to suffer with, not with yeah. this album, because we knew our tours were going to be big, but mm. we were not giving people really what they wanted with this album, which was fulfilling to us, but... It's also hard because the success of an album depends on the success of the previous album, usually. Mm. So on Tiamo, we paid the price for being this naughty about bankrupt. Yeah. Because we started from scratch a little bit. I love Tiamo, but it came at such a, a disturbing time in history, like the Charlie Hebdo attacks, the Bataclan, the truck in Nice. And at the time, you guys said you couldn't quite understand why you were writing these sort of happy songs and maybe you guys liked apathy. But in hindsight, do you think it just made perfect sense now that you would return to more innocent times in some ways during your childhood, especially for the brothers, like, you know, in Italy? I mean, like, there's so much that happened in the last eight years when we lived in LA that I don't think even now I have begun to unpack. Yeah. You know, the kind of psychic toll all those events take on you. But for you, like in writing Tiamo, like a song like J-Boy. It's such a lovely song. It's like euphoric and life-affirming and melancholy. It's just like everything is in that song. about it but it's a little bit like sign of the times by prince well it's like a your witness you know when there's in j-boy it's like you stole that money from the homeless girl and all these things there's a lot of chaos that that happens around you and you're just a witness of because you feel hopeless you feel like you're not an essential worker you know and when those attacks happened the first reaction to that we had was why do we make music mm. is it even a 
a respectful thing to be doing this now while people are mourning and things. Do we wait? Do we? So you're, it's very unsettling and you feel like you're, it's very shallow. And with time, you realize that that's the best way you can cope with it, us as a band, but that also it's feeding the create, it's feeding the, you know, that's, that's the, the function of music and art in general. It's based on this concept. Mm-hmm. It transcends, it's catharsis. Mm-hmm. It's a healing process and it's also a way to express all these demons and all these things that you went through or you wish, these alternative realities that you wish never happened. So after a while, we went in the studio and we created this world. You know, I remember saying we were not in denial when we did the interview mm. for Tiamo, but I guess... I was wrong that we were really creating a fantasy world with Tiamo, that a world where the brother's dad is still there. We are in Italy. We go through yeah. all their, you know, well, a few years back. It's very, there's a lot of light. It's very joyous. Even though there's melancholy and nostalgia in the songs, there are these like little vignettes of like true moments of happiness. And there are mixed emotions between the reality and the fantasy. Yeah. In that album, it was also fun to discover Italy through the eyes of the brothers. You know, Deck and I, we didn't grow up with these songs and we were, it was like finding treasures all the time because there are so many Italian artists that we didn't know of and so much great music and lyrics that inspired the album. Tiamo might have been a sonic postcard from a time of innocence, but it was spliced with more pressing contemporary concerns, like climate change if you caught the line, no more coral on the atoll. Of sun-drenched family holidays for the brothers in Italy, first loves, teenage girls with shiny bangles, and Italian songs that soundtrack their happy escapades. But also, there's a sense that all is not rosy, and Toma telegraphed this unease and longing for the past into what he was feeling at the time. In the song Telefono, his longing is more immediate. He's desperate to be at his wife, filmmaker Sofia Coppola's side. Posa vivere means I can't live without you. It seems Tomas's use of Italian has allowed him to express his love more freely. What might seem corny in English is heartfelt in Italian. Though you still sense the disconnect that underscores the nature of long-term relationships, all that is left unspoken, and the insecurities that can plague us. It's also interesting to note this growing ease with the use of different languages in their songs. This melange of French and English continues on their latest album, Alpha Zulu. It's delightful on the track Eyes On Me, 
written when the band watched a group of kids play soccer during a quarantine break. In it, Thomas plays with the French terms for yes, no, and thank you, lining them up pleasingly with the song's quick techno backbeat. Before they cut you out, and you were missing, honestly, I thought you weren't allowed. Me, we, me, no, me, no, me, but in the title track Alpha Zulu, he takes this play with language a level up. See if you can spot the almost surrealist line. It reads like poetry. And even if you did have a good grasp of the French language, it still takes some effort making sense of it. start out singing in a different language, you try to just sound very English. You don't necessarily want people to know you are from France singing in English, but I like how you've come like full circle now and even in Tiamo where you hear a bit of French, a bit of Italian, and then in Alpha Zulu, you're starting to, it's very poetic, right? One of the lines in that first song about seeing the purple cloud in the consomme. Yeah. It's just like the perfect embodiment of everything you've done so far. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it makes me happy because I love this idea that you create your own language. It started maybe with Listomania, but then it kept going. This idea that you don't have to play with cliches anymore. You know, you can create your own little mm. moment that are awkward. Mm. That's really satisfying because at first when you don't speak English and you write lyrics, the first instinct would be to send it to a friend. You know, I did that for the three first records. I would send them and maybe what do you think? Mm. You know, either to mm. Sophia for the third record or to friends. Mm. Is there anything that's off or anything? Mm. And uh, specifically, American people don't really correct you. There's a freedom in music where they're like, mm. you did it. So it doesn't matter if it's correct or not. It's just original and it's your own. We started embracing more and more the flaws and the weird French grammar with the English language. A phrase is built in French or in German a very different way than in English. So you kind of, yeah. you can play with it. And also when we write a song, yeah. you know, there's a bit of speaking in tongues that's happening. There's a stream of consciousness. You're trying to figure out what a part of you wanted to say. And then you piece the mm. things together and make sense out of it. But you don't make it too literal. You keep a little bit of the magic of, of it. It makes so much sense to me now, like that you had this kind of passion for poetry. This could only be written by a French person working in English. <laughs> but uh, Bronco in the band for my 18th birthday, he gave me a Hank Williams mm -hmm. book of all his lyrics. He wrote inside of it, like, you're a poet, son. You can do this. Hank Williams' lyrics are very different than the way we think in France because it's so simple. All these simple ideas, he just switches. It's just a puzzle where he puts the pieces in different places. Yeah. And that instantly creates poetry and, and mystique. Mm -hmm. Like for a French person, you have to pull back and it takes more time to think of how to make something your own and make something singular. Even in French? Yeah, I think so. It wouldn't work 
as easily for us. So it was more intimidating to write lyrics in French at first. Mm. And that's why we, we never really did it anyway. We never really thought of doing it. Alpha Zulu was written in one of France's most iconic museums, the Louvre. Much of it was during the pandemic. There were no visitors in its normally crowded halls. And outside, there was an eerie silence on the streets of Paris. This translated into the more personal nature of the album's songwriting. Unsurprisingly, themes like loss, death, aging, and the climate are all present in Alpha Zulu. And while the title track first struck me as odd, as with most Phoenix songs, it made perfect sense to Thomas. I hear that it's based on a kind of near-death experience on a plane ride. Was it like Cameron Crowe's Almost no. Famous? Where you think you're going to die and you're like professing your love? Yeah, yeah. It was Cameron Crowe, except it wasn't a private jet at all. And it was with my bandmates. <laughs> it was one of these small flights in, over Belize. But I was in the seat of the co-pilot because the, when the flight is full, they sit you in the front. Nice. It's nice when a flight goes well. But when a flight doesn't go well, I have the headphones and the thing and I hear everything that goes wrong. Oh, no. It was really bumpy and I kept hearing control tower saying, calling the tail of the plane saying Alpha Zulu, Alpha Zulu, drop altitude after Alpha Zulu. That was a scary moment that resurfaced when we were writing a song. And that language that they have on the airplane, I'm always amazed that it's universal the same way that music is, that anyone from any country can understand each other. Mm. I like the science of it, you know, the fact that, you know, they pick November for N because November is the one word that everybody pronounces the same. <laughs> it's pretty interesting to me, not just lyricists, but like as a concept of creating your own language. The music video really brings to the fore the fact that you guys were in the Louvre when you recorded it. Do you have a little anecdote about the song? Because you mentioned that maybe in the 20 minutes that you're walking down the corridor, you saw something and somehow it found itself in the song. Was there any of that when you were writing Alpha Zulu? Well, I think for the video, for sure, because when you spend two years in the museum with nobody there except the guards, First, the guards all believe in ghosts because they spend so much time and oh. you can have a shining effect. You feel like the place is driving you crazy a little bit or that the art is talking to you or that certain rooms have special power. I think that impacted the Alpha Zulu the most, I would say, the museum. Cool. Would it seem ironic to you that you escaped Versailles yeah. and now you are literally yes, exactly. in a museum? Yeah. That was... That was very ironic. I was relieved that we were down during the pandemic because at least the place was dead, silent, and we knew we could make noise and not disturb everyone. You know, I didn't, I didn't expect the police to come and bang on the door or something. <laughs> so I was relieved that we were on our own. And it made that combo of being in that place and the fact that it was a surreal, eerie, dystopian because Paris was asleep and everybody stayed home, made it very special. I don't know how it inspired really the lyrics, but I know that whenever you're writing a song that you grab the lexicon or the vocabulary that's right there, you know, everything that surrounds you or whether you were walking down the aisle of the medieval room or something, that's going to show up in a song. Mm. There's a combination of deeply rooted influences and very superficial short memory 
things. Mm. So yeah, it was a, it was very ironic. And yes, that album, it, like you said, is about, there's a lot about loss, a lot about loyalty, a lot about aging. Uh, it's a very personal record and it's a very, it was done in a very unique time, like all the albums that are coming out now with mm. extra depth and emotional gravitas. There are certain songs that, even though they are heavy, we are the four of us in the studio, so we we are manifesting for the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit. Tonight is one of the songs on this album with a lighter touch. For the first time in the history of the band, there is a guest feature on the record. Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend joins Thomas for a duet, though you'd be hard-pressed to tell their voices apart. a song we have a whiteboard with every part has its own name we know we give a the part it's never verse chorus bridge because we never finish songs that way they always they might end up you know the parts on a different song and they might become the bridge or them but mm-hmm. the part in tonight that goes the what if we like that small section was called ezra uh, and so I, I thought like, well, I'm really mimicking Ezra. I called it Ezra and I don't know where I came from, but I thought like, well, let me ask Ezra to sing it because instead of mimicking also, it made sense for the song to be a duet because it was written like this. What was interesting after that is that he, he mimicked me <laughs> while I was, because I sent him the guide of the vocal guide and he, he wanted to do what you wanted him to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wanted him to become more, to be more himself, but he was trying to be professional, copy me. And I was impersonating <laughs> him on his part. So ultimately we merged and it makes perfect sense because the end of the song is, Oh, how I wish I could be someone like you, be someone else. It's all about having an alter ego, a nemesis. And so. It makes sense that our voices merge and become similar to one another. which I was not sure of in the beginning. I was thinking, I hope he doesn't mind singing my weird lyrics because I'm not 
you know, it's strange enough to write them for the band, you know, to, to be the voice of the band, but to ask someone else to sing your, that's not even in the band. I, I kept giving him out, you know, I, would, I kept texting him saying, are you sure you want to do this? It's totally okay if you're not into it. And it was mostly, I, I kept singing this messages mostly because mm-hmm. of the lyrics, you know, that I was, I thought like, you know, that some very strange <laughs> lyrics here, like who let the boys eat yes. their entree and dinner are served. I was like, are you sure you want to sing this? And he was like, okay. And then he said yes to everything. So my favorite song of the album is Artifact. about it being personal it's it's like we feel like we're getting a glimpse into your relationship or you know your relationship with being in a relationship and aging and all the rest of that Um, and it feels so real because we also recognize ourselves in those lyrics you know um, like I'm looking for an artifact a piece of me that's still intact like I still get goosebumps when I say it you know and that line when you get upset I can't afford it it's all those things that you give and I think maybe Telefoner has that effect as well from the last episode there's a vulnerability that you're sharing something that's not your better self you know if it's like jealousy in the other one you know when a song has that quality do you you pull it back do you try to obscure things or do you just let the song be uh yeah you do pull it back maybe a little bit to make it a bit more cryptic but for instance on the verse like over nova scotia i'm no ruby rosa this is cryptic but to me it's not it's absolutely not because nova scotia is the place where i fly the most and that's the most turbulence. It's again the fear of flying. That's that's the place that's the most bumpy. And Ruby Rosa is this fearless character, like a gigolo who would fly these army airplanes that his mistresses would buy for him. He's like the most alpha male, confident. So the references are a little cryptic, or they need a little digging to understand. But to me, I wouldn't change them. I wouldn't make them more obvious because they are the true feeling of the moment. So mm. to sum up what I'm, I mean, is like I'm hoping that I'm more complex than a song. Like for some reason, the song that comes to my mind is Life, Oh Life, Oh mm. Life. You know, the song that has no, uh, <laughs> that, that somehow the vocabulary and the, the references and things are more 
that all these ideas that popped are, are raising more questions than they bring answers. That's, that's always a, yeah. a quality that I liked. Identical is that rare Phoenix song where their hearts are worn on their sleeves. In 2019, Philippe Zadar, their producer and close friend, who had also worked with artists such as MC Solar, the Beastie Boys and Cat Power, shocked the music industry when news of his sudden death from an accidental fall broke. Identical would become the first song they wrote for Alpha Zulu. Yeah, the whole song we wrote three days after his funeral. So it's the first time we went to the studio and I wanted to make that one more cryptic, but Bronco and the band was like, no, go full on. It doesn't matter. That's the only time where he sort of intervened and said like, it doesn't have to be cryptic. This one is too important for us. So whenever our references make it as clear as possible, because it's too important. That one is different. Take my advice, make more mistakes is more like self-reflection of all the, when you asked about, you know, if there were any low moments when we were starting the band, it's more uh, not regretting anything, you know, mm. there's a German, there's a saying that's uh, the one who regrets is unhappy twice, you know, so it's the same idea. <laughs> it's the same, it's the same thing that you not only are unhappy, you don't regret, but you learn from these moments. And sometimes, like I said, in a weird, twisty way, that we enjoy those moments that we do mistakes and we're like, well, at a low point for some reason. I watched a video where Philippe was talking about the making of Love Like a Sunset, and he said that he realized that many of his greatest emotions in the studio have been with Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, it's the same for us. He would bring so much, his charisma and everything. Yeah, every moment. A lot of artists feel the same. You know, there's a, a band called Sons of Raphael. That was his last record. And I remember him texting me like, I feel the same as on Wolfgang with these guys. It's so intense. It's so good. The emotion during the recording of this album. When the way to get there is, is so enjoyable or so intense, it makes it so much better. Mm. It's a life lesson. This life lesson is felt most acutely on Winter Solstice, a song that Tamar first says that unlike any of the others, bore no light at the end of the tunnel. It was written during the California fires, at the peak of the pandemic and the political climate that aggravated everything. Girl 
hard to connect, but the world didn't change. We were away from each other. California had all the fires. I was in Northern California and people were wearing masks for the smoke mm. more than for the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And um, there was one day, there was one week while the sky was orange. There was one day that never peaked. It was nighttime for two nights and a day. And so that's when we wrote Winter Sources as a way to communicate with each other. Not during the that night, but right after. Once it was passed, mm. it was like when the terrorist attack was mm. gone, it was like, okay, now we can do our things. But we never really created during a moment that was really hard. We always had to like wait for it to pass and like, well, okay, we can express what we went through. The only light of that song is loyalty. The idea that you're going through something with people you love. Keeping the lights on, obliged to the bygones. Thank God you know your way. At the end of the day, as much as your, your music sometimes needs to be deciphered, each record really does tell us where you're at as a band and also as just people living through a specific time. It's a real like artifact of you, the band, and, and all of us in some ways as well. So what does it mean for you to be able to do this with your friends for like more than 30 years? What's your secret to like staying together in an industry that's so fickle? That's the one question that's new to us on this album. We do enjoy the highs and the lows. This is our first band, so we always stuck together. Playing new songs is also really, you know, I, I don't think we'll be able to tour if we put up a record we're not proud of or if we put out a best of or just touring the old songs. We played once a show in Mexico where we played for the 10 years of Wolfgang. We played all of Wolfgang in the order. And I, I have to say, I didn't like it. I was like, this feels like memorabilia. It's nothing about the new things. Mm. We're not doing this again. Uh, it's not, it's not. <laughs> and my friends felt the same way. It was funny to do it once, but looking back too much is not a good thing. But I think something happened on this album that because of the pandemic and the way it was written, we didn't take anything for granted or we took it less for granted than usual. So that was a big change. You know, that's that's the reason why every live show that we played so far on this tour has been very intense and satisfying mm, for us. Mm. You're hoping that you're going to do this for a long time, but the reality is different. And, and there's a lot of bands right now that are struggling. You know, there's a lot of bands that are canceling tours. There's a lot of festivals that are not happening. We don't really have a secret, you know, we are just, we are friends uh, and we enjoy spending time with each other. As long as people will show up to shows, we just need enough to fill a room. You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Tomah Mars from Phoenix. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfin. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Additional music from Lily Sloan. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis-Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. 
or get a copy of our latest print issue. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time, thank you for listening.